0: The most essential truth of the Christian faith is that the God of the entire universe has spoken to us in his word and in his son. Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast where we take that personally as we open our Bibles and dig deep into the life-giving, anxiety-crushing, identity-shaping truth of the scriptures. Whether you're busy washing dishes, working out, driving home from work, or carving out a rare moment to relax, I pray you'll find this podcast a source of refreshing, hope-filled Bible teaching that makes a difference in your life right now. Because wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however you're feeling, God's right there in the middle of it. So let's open our Bibles and find Him. Welcome back, friends. This is the Her God Speaks podcast. I'm your host, April Sweers, and I am here with my friend, Rachel Setliff. Hey who is going to help tee up our lesson today. We like to have a little bit of fun before we dig into the word, just like any good Bible study. Um, I do want to remind you guys, if you have not yet checked out Rachel's ministry, Restored Home, you need to do that. You can go to restoredhome.org or find her on Instagram at Restored Home. She's also on Facebook at Restored Home, but not as active on that account, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a beautiful website, lots of resources there. Um, So anyway, just wanted to remind you guys of that. Uh, We are continuing our Isaiah series. What are we? Episode eight. Eight. Wow. We're getting there. We are getting there. We are getting there. This
1: week, the... We, like, reached the good parts. We, we?
0: did yeah. reach the good part. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. I want to play a game of unpopular opinion. I think I've done this... I say every series. Yes. I think I've done three series. Yes, This is like the third one.
1: <laughs> I love this.
0: I do too. Yeah. It's one of my favorite icebreaker questions. Any of yes. you who lead a small group, you need to do this as an icebreaker question in your small group. Let people share their unpopular opinions. It's the most fun. Yes. It really, really is. And isn't there like a show or I don't a YouTube or I don't know. I don't like know this. where it, I feel like there's like an actual show or something where people do this, but I'm going to let you go first. I'd like you to share an unpopular opinion. Okay, and share. I told Rachel not to share much with me because I want to be surprised. Okay. I feel like you might lose some
1: followers with Uh-oh. my unpopular. Okay. Opinions. Okay. I don't like dogs. Oh, Rachel. <laughs> and I should probably cats? rephrase that. <laughs> I hate dogs. You hate dogs? I really hate dogs. Gosh. And I, I, I always have. And I, I grew up with dogs. I so it's not that i I'm, I'm not like familiar with dogs okay I have never really met a dog that I like
0: all right you have met my dog Hagrid yeah you're telling me you don't like my dog (laughs) oh my gosh he's so cute I have a Boston not a Boston my parents have a Boston here. I have a pug a pug named Hagrid and I thought I like his name okay because you are a Harry Potter fan yeah
1: I like his name
0: Okay, let's do a little segue about Harry Potter, because this, I think, is a funny thing about us. Yes. All right, so we were raised in the same church. I don't know if you're at the church yet, when our pastor did a whole sermon on the evils of Harry Potter. It was right when it had come out. It was, like, the big to-do, and that really stuck with me. I'm very, like, listen to the pastor, Yeah. you know, what is it, no hint of immorality or yes. evil deeds of yes. darkness yes. and I remember you I don't know how long it was after that kind of controversy I was the first rebel you were the first rebel I know you read the contraband I did. book and the I loved band it. book and you loved it yes. and then our um our friend Erin mm-hmm. who's like part of our trio yes. she then read it and loved it yes. and I remember thinking you guys were like
1: we stepped over. You stepped
0: over the yes. line. Yes. And I held strong for so long. And then yeah. finally I I came around and I realized that was kind of a bunch of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Which some of our listeners may still feel – if you yes. feel a conviction, then yes. by all means, like, stick with that. But there was no biblical warrant yes. for not reading Harry yes. Potter. And so I got to read it for the very first time with my son. Yeah. I think when he was 10, we started reading them together. Yeah. And it was – to date like the most beautiful experience I've had with him read aloud experience it is it? the best and we did it with like the audiobook yeah. so the reader did all the voices yeah. oh my goodness it's it just,
1: is it's such a redemptive story it's
0: beautiful yeah. it is so beautiful yeah. all right so we're not going to get on the Harry Potter train but yes okay. we loved it so much that during COVID lockdown yeah. we got a dog like so many other people we got a pug and we named him Hagrid yes as a testament to how much we love oh,
1: There you go. I Harry like Potter. something about your dog.
0: You do? You love like his name? <laughs> I like his name. Oh, so you had a dog. I for, I feel like you had a dog when I met you. We had
1: two dogs. Okay. We had Freckles.
0: Yes, Freckles. And okay. Lexi.
1: And Lexi. my nephew, when he was little, he couldn't say Lexi, so he
0: called her sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it was the cutest I remember that. Yeah, it was cute. Oh, uh, that's adorable. All right, so you don't like dogs. I, I really don't. That is an extremely unpopular opinion. If you, opinion. like...
1: If you really love your dog, I will probably comment with, oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Like if you send me a picture of your dog, I wouldn't say, oh, he's cute. So you're respectful. I would
0: say, oh, that's sweet. Okay. That's a sweet picture. You're honest, but respectful. Yeah. All right. All right. So you don't like dogs. All right, listeners, you can send hate mail Here's too. Here's the thing, though,
1: April. My children are praying that if I ever get married again, that that man will have a dog, because oh. they're like, that's our only way that we're ever going to have a dog. So they're like, that is <laughs> our one qualification for a oh husband for
0: you. You have to have. Oh my goodness, he has to have a dog. Or so we now you're like, no. I don't think I want to get. And I was remarried. like, well,
1: I will never be attracted to a
0: man with a dog. So <laughs> wow, the hatred I guess I'll runs just deep. never get married. Wow, yeah, 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 that's intense. All right, you ready for me to share mine? I, yeah, bring it on. All right, so my unpopular opinion, I had to think of a new one because I think last time I did this, I shared my dislike of Disney. Disney. And you lose I. Some followers. I probably that? did. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another unpopular opinion is I i really don't care about sports at all. What? I know. They could cease to exist, like, there'd be no more sports in the world. Yeah. And I. Did you notice? don't know if I would notice yeah honestly in fact and a lot of I think there are probably some people that feel that way but they're married to people who love sports like right. I married a gamer yes not a ball gamer like <laughs> computer <laughs> it's like a baller <laughs> yeah gamer gamer um
1: yeah. So I just And you're raising two gamer sons. I am right? raising two
0: gamer sons. Yeah. In fact, the other day I, I told Chef I was like, you know, do we need to start watching sports games so you can like interact did you call with them your sports friends? Games? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Do we start watching <laughs> sports games? And um yeah, I mean, if I'm there for a game, I'm totally there for the food. I love sports foods. Yes. Like hot dogs and wings. Yeah. Do you and, like
1: live sports? I mean,
0: no. Usually there's some good concessions. Yeah. Um, Like, I don't know what what field it is around here. I think it's like baseball, maybe Tropicana. I don't know. They have really good garlic fries. Okay. That I really love. Yeah. With lots of fresh garlic on them.
1: Yeah. But that that's con-
0: the only thing I like about sports. But the fact
1: that you didn't even know, like, what sport it was tied yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's okay. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. And people around here get really obsessed about the bucks and yeah. the lightning yeah. and it's a good sports Therese. place to live. It is. I mean, Tampa is a great place and and their yeah. teams have been they've I think, come up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I and I just don't care. Like yeah. I, you know, I, I don't. And it's probably because I'm not good at them. I'm not good at sports. Yeah. I've yeah. never been good at sports. In fact, some of my most traumatizing, I think, childhood experiences. to all like, of us, right? <laughs>
1: gym class oh my word I vividly
0: remember like playing volleyball and I kept serving it backwards <laughs> like it would go yes. behind me and it's so embarrassing I was definitely the girl who got chosen last yeah. like when they did like choose teams yeah. so it's probably I mean I was a golfer
1: and you were on the dance That's team right. right so we're not
0: yeah we're not super and sporty. I was okay so I was on the color color guard is that what I think that's what yeah. they called it? And I vividly remember the coach telling me, "Like you're not a very good dancer, but I was really good with the flag." Yeah. And then we in the winter we did Winter Guard, which was like rifle and right. saber. I, like yeah. threw this wooden rifle in the air. I was I good at that part. I, I like went
1: to some of your competitions. You did. That's so weird.
0: I yeah. can't believe I did
1: that. I know. <laughs> really and can you believe that I golfed? No, <laughs> I haven't golfed since I was eighteen. Oh, you also
0: play basketball.
1: You? Yeah, middle or school. Or you were into basketball. I, yeah, I liked it. Yeah,
0: I can never like relate to you on that level. Yeah. I do remember one of your birthday parties. We went to uh, we
1: went to Norla-
0: Orlando Magic good game. Job. Yes, um, and we went basketball. to. I remember going to dinner. Yeah, at Planet Hollywood. Yeah. I don't remember anything about the game though, but was, Shaquille O'Neal was on the team yeah, at that, that time, was back wasn't in, he? Like, yeah,
1: third, yeah, yeah. It was a good game too.
0: Even your love of basketball and gangster rap. I know.
1: There's a little hood inside
0: of me. I have a little hood. Oh my goodness. I love it. All right. So like you said at the beginning, we are finally at the part of Isaiah that people actually read.
1: Right. And I probably like, I kind of earlier said the good part. Yeah. But that's kind of how we think, isn't it? It
0: is. And it is. I mean, I mean, it's it's a chapter that starts with comfort, comfort. My people is like totally our jam. It's
1: good. But maybe I should reword it. It. I don't know. How would we even reword that
0: uh, I don't know but it does make me think of the Instagram real audio yes. where it's like <laughs> can we skip to the good part <laughs> yeah yeah um because I gotta tell you there is sometimes in these last few weeks I've wanted to skip. I know. come on Isaiah 40 yeah. can you please get here all right so why do you think I think we've, we've talked about this a little bit but I think it's worth talking about again like why are we so like prone to skip to the good part yeah especially in our, in our reading of scripture.
1: I mean, I think for a few, like we want the good news. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. We, want, we want to get to the good news. For sure. We don't really want to deal with the bad news. We yeah. we want to kind of set it in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just skip, like skip to the the parts where we see comfort and restoration. Right. Um, but I think also we're looking at scripture through the lens of what does this say about me? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. where can I see myself? Where can I? You know, you have your mugs that you sold at Christmas. Uh-huh. You know, we want like the coffee mug. Yeah, the, the coffee mug. We want the comfort. Yeah, we want these verses that we can, you know, boost up our, our day right. ourselves. You know, yeah.
0: We get we a little do.
1: stuck on looking at scripture through the lens of how, like, what does this say about me?
0: Yeah, yeah. And what do you think we miss out on? I mean, we miss out on
1: so much. Like, if we don't have. The bad news, how can good news ever be good news if we don't understand the bad yeah, news? You know, that's if so we true. don't read those first thirty nine chapters, how how can we know that the good news is good if we if we haven't experienced, you know Yeah.
0: And I've had that actual experience with Isaiah because I Isaiah forty's been like one of my favorite yeah. passages for a very, very it's like all right. the way back since high school. Yeah. Um I had never studied it. I'd I'd never experienced it where I had to spend so many weeks trudging through the first 39 chapters. And when you finally get, like there's this massive payoff when you finally get to chapter 40 and the tone of the whole prophecy starts to change. Um, The people are still living in exile. Mm -hmm. Things are not better. They're not resolved. resolved. We're still living in a lot of tension. But the hope, you go from little blips of hope to these like massive chunks of hope. And you're right. Like if we don't linger in the hard... You don't really have the right. full experience right. of the 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 good, beautiful yeah. parts. And I yeah. think I,
1: I didn't understand that until my own life fell apart. Mm. You know, I couldn't like my world was dark, and yeah. so I had to like I had to find places where it was dark in Scripture too. Like right. we need to see that there is suffering and there's pain, yeah. but there's hope. There's hope, you know. So yeah. we we need. We need all of it.
0: We do. And that coffee mug theology cannot hold the weight of real life. No. When you put all those cute verses together that we have on our wall art and all the things, like what you come up with is like put together. It's a a prosperity gospel. And I'm realizing how much, I mean, we would all, we were in a... um, you know, a Christian subculture that would be very critical, highly critical and call out the, um, the heresy right. of prosperity gospel. And yet I'm seeing in my own life, as I've gotten older, as I've walked alongside you with some things just falling apart. I'm like, "Do can the Bible hold the weight right. of what's happening to my friend? Yeah. Can the Bible, and then so many others who have suffered in my own experiences with my youngest and yeah. his neuro, you know, behavioral issues and right. having to grapple with all that. And I am so thankful that the Bible can hold the weight of that, right. if and only if we study the, the whole, whole thing. Right. And um, yeah, I know like Psalms of Lament have become really yes. special to me. Yep. And yeah, so let's not skip to the good part. Mm. They're Although all good parts, they're right? all good parts. Although I am thankful to finally yeah. be in Isaiah forty. Yes, I will say that
1: there's a sweetness to it. There is because the, we've trudged through with yeah. Isaiah. You we've know.
0: we've lingered yeah. in the hard places. Yeah. And it makes, it makes it all the more beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. All right. All right. It happened again yesterday when I was making pasta salad. The recipe started with the words, in a large bowl, combine. Simple enough. But here's the thing. I don't use my... Large bowl very often. So it's crammed all the way in the back of the cabinet with a bunch of stuff stacked on top of it. My medium bowl, however, was right there in the drying rack from the night before. No effort required, just grab and go. And it usually works just fine. So I chose that one, obviously. As I'm stirring and the pasta mixture is falling out all over the place, I suddenly understand why the recipe calls for the large bowl. I also reflect on the other 567 times. I have failed to heed that advice. Apparently, I'm a slow learner. (laughs) And now there's about as much pasta salad on the counter as there is in the bowl. This isn't working. I need the bigger bowl. All right, I promise this whole thing about pasta salad and bowls does have a point. (laughs) The last couple of years have been hard. And I would say that even if there hadn't been a global pandemic. I won't go into details, but I will say it's forced me to ask whether my theology is big enough to hold it all. Is my view of God able to hold the weight of my increasingly imperfect life? How about you? How would you answer that question? I've been looking forward to this week since we started this series because Isaiah 40 has been my favorite chapter of the Bible for as far back as I can remember. More recently, it has become my bigger bowl, so to speak. My reminder that no matter how overwhelming or complicated life gets, the God I love and serve is the supreme creator of the universe and the ever faithful savior of his people. In terms of how we've been tracking along, it also represents a huge turning point in the book. Chapter 39 looks ahead to the Babylonian invasion. By chapter 40, it has already happened. The remaining chapters of the prophecy are for God's people living in exile. People who had experienced hardship on a level few of us can even fathom. People who definitely needed a bigger bowl. The chapter starts with the words, comfort, Comfort my people. And isn't that tender refrain such a relief? Finally, all the judgment that Isaiah has been describing in the first 39 chapters is about to give way to a focus on salvation. Because remember, for Isaiah, judgment never has the final word. Go ahead and look at the passage with me. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that should cause us as the reader to ask, well, how? How have her iniquities been pardoned? How has she received double from all her sins? Well, Isaiah doesn't tell us here. He's going to go into more detail later, uh, so we have to keep reading. All right, so verse 3, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain. And here's why, verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but, and this is the point, The word of our God remains forever. Zion, herald of good news. Go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Some translations say, behold your God. See, the Lord comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd and gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Well, let's go ahead, stop there, and talk about this for a little bit. One thing we need to understand to fully appreciate this announcement of hope is that exile was considered the Ultimate defeat. Exile was to a nation what death is to a person. The original hearers of this prophecy would not have had a category for a nation recovering from exile. Their sacred identity as God's people living in God's place was completely wrecked by the Babylonians, and the hope of a Davidic king ever reigning again was shattered. This is the situation into which Isaiah's announcement of God's return to Zion is proclaimed. Now, in our day, when a president comes to town, it's a big deal. There's a whole security detail and entire roads are closed. In those days, when a king or important dignitary would come into a city, a whole new road would be built. Mountains would be leveled and uneven ground smoothed to make a clear path for the king's entrance into the city. And this king that's coming in Isaiah 40 is not just any king. This is Yahweh. And as he enters, his presence is utterly transforming. Notice that little reminder in verse 5 that this isn't just for Israel. All humanity together will see it. I love how Isaiah keeps weaving that in. I bet you didn't know that the word gospel first shows up, not in the New Testament, but in the book of Isaiah. It's translated good news in verse 9. The good news is that in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their exile, Yahweh is returning because he is going to make good on every promise. Remember that promise he made to Abraham that we looked at in episode one, and then we have the promise he made to David, and then of course the passage in Exodus 19 where he called his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At this point, it looks like all of those promises have been broken. None of them are going to come to pass. What is being announced in Isaiah 40 is the good news that God is faithful, that God is going to make good on every single promise that he has made to his people. So if you think the good news or the gospel is simply the Romans road <laughs> or John 3:16, that is certainly a part of it. But you guys, it's so much bigger when you see it from a whole Bible perspective. And you cannot understand fully, fully the depth of what the gospel is if you don't understand uh, what we have here in the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapters of 40 through 66, as we see the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Now look at how Yahweh is described In verse 10, he's a strong warrior God. It says, see, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. But in verse 11, right after that, he's pictured as a tender shepherd. It says he protects his flock. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He gently leads those who have young. I love the fact that power and tenderness is never an either-or with God. It's always a both-and. And And this is why in the Gospels we see Jesus commanding the sea and bossing demons around, and we see him weeping over Jerusalem and drawing near to the brokenhearted. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Well, let's stop for a second and answer those questions. The answer to all of them is nobody. Isaiah is using these images to highlight God's transcendence, his omniscience, and his self-sufficiency. Let's keep going in verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him and they are considered by him as empty nothingness. Now, I do want to clarify there that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the nations. These metaphors are all about size and proportions. What he's saying is that in relation to God, the nations are itty bitty, teeny tiny. Even Assyria, even the big bad Babylonians. God is so much bigger than even the most powerful nation in the world. All right, verse 18. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for a comparison with him? And by the way, that right there ought to be underlined in your Bible because it is the question of this whole passage. Verse 19. An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Sarcasm is definitely being employed here. The pedestal will rot, and the idol will fall over. Verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. Remember all those judgment oracles that we labored through back in chapters 13 through 23? Well, that was the whole point of those. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. 24, they are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind, carries them away like stubble. All right, so then he repeats the question from verse 18. Look at this. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them was missing. All right, so the main idea of these verses is that God is the incomparable creator whose unmatched supremacy, authority, and transcendence makes him worthy of our exclusive worship. That was a mouthful. (laughs) That is, that is the main idea. All right. So one thing I love about this passage is that it shows us the proper response to the creation story. I'm talking about like Genesis one and two here. All right. So as post enlightenment, modern Christians tend to get all caught up in the science of it all, but the age of the earth and all the other little scientific details they're just not the point of Genesis 1 and 2. Not even close to the point of Genesis 1 and 2. What we've just read in Isaiah 40 is the whole point. Isaiah understood what, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is supposed to do to a person. It's supposed to invoke a deep sense of awe that leads to wholehearted allegiance and rock-solid trust. We'll look at verse 27. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? All right, so that verse I just read is really important because it gives us insight into the people's frame of mind. Remember, they were exiled in Babylon. And as I said before, there was no category in their minds for exiled people Returning to their homeland. So it's really easy to see why they would say, My way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God. Their feelings make total sense, but those feelings needed to be sifted through what's true about God and what God has said about their future. All right. Their psychology needed to be shaped by good theology. And that's essentially what this passage is seeking to do. All right, let's pick up in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. and He gives strength to the faint. And strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not become weary. they will walk and not faint. Now verse 28, really the whole chapter, makes it so clear that God is powerful, but it gets even better than that. Because verse 29 reveals to us that he doesn't keep that power to himself. He actually gives it away to his people. And the way we reach out and take it is there in verse 31. It says, but those who trust, those who trust in the Lord. That's the appropriate response to these truths. When we trust his salvation, we go from stumbling and falling to soaring running, and walking. Now, has it ever struck you how out of order those actions of verse 31 seem? I mean, shouldn't it be reversed? You walk, then you run, and then you soar. Shouldn't trusting the Lord pick up more speed and eventually take us to new heights? Shouldn't there be progression, not regression? Well, the answer to all of these questions is yes. Unless... Walking is the point. Unless endurance is the goal. Unless life with God is more about how far than how fast or how high. You know, we're constantly hearing the message that it's not enough to survive. We need to thrive. Faster, stronger, better, they say. Problem is, that's not as easy as it used to be, right? Life is harder. The days feel longer. I don't know about you, but my heart is heavier. Metaphorically speaking, my feet hurt. (laughs) Oh, By God's grace, I can still walk. I can take it one step at a time. I can open my Bible every morning and remind my heart what's true. I can daily cast my burdens on the Lord and trust that he really does care for me. I can be in community with other believers. I can pour into others. I can be faithful in the small things. Right, left, right, left. We aren't called to be runners. We're called to be faithful. I could say a whole lot more about that, but let's go ahead and move on to chapter 41. Verse 1. Be silent before me, coasts and islands, and let peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them testify. Let's come together for the trial. All right, so we have a court scene being convened here. And the reason for the trial is that the people don't seem to recognize that God alone is worthy of their exclusive worship and trust. So get down to verse 5. The coasts and islands see... And are afraid, the whole earth trembles, they approach and arrive. Each one helps the other and says to another, Take courage. The craftsman encourages the metal worker, the one who flattens with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. He fastens it with nails so that it will not fall over. All right, so let's take a look. who's who's being gathered for this trial? Well, it's the makers and worshipers of idols. Right they're They're gathering for the trial and and they're pumping each other up, giving each other high fives, trying to convince themselves that they've got nothing to worry about. But then God speaks. Skip to verse 21. Submit your case, says the Lord. Present your arguments, says Jacob's king. Let them, the idols, come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so that we may reflect on them and know the outcome or go ahead and tell us the future. Come on, idols, tell us the coming events. Then we will know that you are God's. Indeed, do something, anything, good or bad. (laughs) Then we will be in awe when we see it. But look, you idols are nothing, and your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. Those are some strong words. And you know, it's so easy for us to apply that last verse to like, statue idols made of wood and metal like they had in Isaiah's day. It's much harder to say this about the idols of our day. Things like wealth, power, social and or political influence, safety, health, control. These kinds of idols don't feel all that worthless, do they? In fact, they feel essential. And how else are we supposed to make it in this crazy, scary world without those things? God's over here saying, What do you mean, how else are you going to make it in the world? I made the world and everything in it, I can take care of you. The absurdity of turning to idols is a major theme in chapters 40 through 48, and we'll see it again towards the end of the book. The idolatry of both Israel and the Gentile world is really bad news, but it's not like Isaiah to leave us sitting in the bad news for too long, is it? No. Thankfully, he leads us right into chapter 42 where he presents us with God's ultimate remedy. Take a look, verse one. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. All right, what we have here is the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The others are found in chapters 49, 50, and 52, 53. These are messianic poems, meaning they point us to the person and work of Jesus. Now, the text does not explicitly say that. So the original audience would not have seen Jesus in these passages the way we do. I imagine there was a lot of mystery around the specific identity of this servant. Well, the verses here in chapter 42 reveal that the servant is strengthened, chosen, and delighted in by God. He is filled with God's spirit. Now, you might expect someone so highly favored and gifted to be showy, loud, and commanding. But according to verse 2, this servant has a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. It says, he will not cry or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. According to verse 3, he is gentle and sensitive. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. In other words, no one is too insignificant or too far gone for him to serve. His mission is to establish justice for the oppressed, to set things right, the way God intends for them to be, and he won't stop until that mission is accomplished. I think there's an important connection to make between this description of the servant and our lives today. I'm going to throw it out there in the form of a question. In our increasingly polarized culture, how can we as Christ followers reflect this quiet, unaggressive, tender ministry to the world? And that's a question worth pondering because there are a lot of Christians today who won't just break a bruised reed, they will grind it to a pulp and throw it in the trash if it doesn't conform to their particular political view. They won't simply snuff out a smoldering wick, they'll drown and suffocate it if it dares to have an opinion that differs from their own. We see this on social media all the time. If we don't reflect the tender, meek, humble, compassionate character of Jesus, particularly among those who aren't like us. Can we really claim to be following him? Now, I can hear the pushback. But Jesus got angry. Yeah, he did. But who did he get angry at? Not lost people, not sinners. He got angry at the self-righteous religious elite who couldn't see past the letter of the law to an actual human soul to save their life just something to think about, friends. Well, the next few verses elaborate the servant's mission. And here God is not speaking about the servant anymore. He's actually speaking to the servant. Verse 5 of chapter 42. This is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose. I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. The past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. All right, so we learn here that this servant, who Isaiah still has not clearly identified, is central to God's covenant purposes. That phrase in verse 6, a light to the nations, is a significant metaphor for salvation. Whoever this servant is, he is going to bring salvation, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. I'll skip down to verse 18. Listen, you deaf, look, you blind, so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf, like my messenger, I am sending. Wait a minute. Now the servant is blind? That doesn't seem to jive too well with what we just read at the beginning of chapter 42. All right. So this is where it gets a little confusing. Because the word servant can refer to different things. You have to keep a close eye on the context. Obviously, Isaiah is speaking about a different servant now because in stark contrast to the servant at the beginning of chapter 42, this servant he's talking about now is deaf and blind. Continuing on in verse 19, who is blind like my dedicated one or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. Because of his righteousness, the Lord was pleased to magnify his instruction and make it glorious. But this is the people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in holes or imprisoned in dungeons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them and loot with no one saying, give it back. Who among you will hear this? Let him listen and obey in the future. Who gave Jacob to the robber and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? Have we not sinned against him? They were not willing to walk in his ways, and they would not listen to his instruction. So he poured out his furious anger and the power of war on Jacob. It surrounded him with fire, but he did not know it. It burned him, but he didn't take it to heart. Okay, so the servant described here is Israel. And just as we saw so clearly described back in chapter six, Israel has been blind and deaf and entirely unresponsive to the word of the Lord. So that whole passage I just read is super depressing. But again, Isaiah never leaves us to wallow in those really sad passages for too long because this description of judgment at the end of chapter 42 is followed by one of the most Gorgeous descriptions of God's gracious restoration in the entire prophecy. Are you guys ready for it? It is so good. All right, let's go. Chapter 42 ends with the ominous image of fire, the fire of God's wrath that has fallen on Judah. But then, but then you get to the next verse. Chapter 43, verse 1 says this Now, this is what the Lord says The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear. "'For I have redeemed you. "'I have called you by your name. "'You are mine. "'When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, "'and the rivers will not overwhelm you. "'When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, "'and the flame will not burn you. "'For I am the Lord your God, "'the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. "'I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, "'Cush and Seba in your place.'" Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. So the hard plight of the captive is described here as passing through water and fire. But even there, under God's judgment, they can still lean on the truth of God's relentless faithfulness to save them. He will keep every. Promise. Skip down to verse 14. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. Because of you, I will send an army to Babylon and bring all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, this is the first time Babylon is mentioned since chapter 39, and it's significant that in this mention, its overthrow is promised. We've come a long way, baby. The downfall of Babylon is a major piece of the restoration puzzle. Now, you guys know how much I hate to skip chapters, but nobody wants a two-hour podcast. So go ahead and turn to chapter 46, verse 1. Bell crouches, Nebo cowers. Idols depicting them are consigned to beasts and cattle. The images you carry are loaded as a burden for the weary animal. The gods cower, they crouch together. They are not able to rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been sustained from the womb, carried along since birth. I will be the same until your old age and I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. So in verses 1 and 2, another contrast is drawn, a showdown of sorts. It's Bel and Nebo versus the God of Israel. Now, Bel was the head of the Babylonian pantheon, their top god, and Nebo was Bel's son, and they are in trouble. They can't bear the weight of what's happening. They are unable to rescue. What Bel and Nebo cannot do, God does effortlessly. He can bear the weight of rescue without even blinking and Now skip down to verse eight. Remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Over and over, Over and over, God is challenging his people to place him right alongside the idols of the nations and to evaluate the differences. The idols cannot think or speak, but God declares the end from the beginning. The idols have no power. They need humans to work for them. But God has all power to do whatever he wants. The idols overlook injustice. They have no solutions for evil and oppression. In fact, they multiply it. But God, who loves justice, provides the remedy for evil and oppression. At every point of comparison, God wins. Now, this would be a really great place to say, with the promise of Babylon's destruction in their hearts, The people of Israel all got right with God and lived happily ever after. But we all know it's never that easy. God calls, equips, blesses, and promises rescue. But chapter 48 has a lot of bad things to say about their response. They remain stubborn and stiff-necked, idol-loving, opinionated, and treacherous. The chapter ends with the ominous declaration that, quote, There is no peace for the wicked, end quote. The wicked in that verse refers to Israel. What Isaiah wants us to see is that the people had two problems. The most obvious was their national bondage to Babylon, and that's certainly the ones that was on their minds. But the second problem was actually the most urgent. It's their spiritual bondage to sin. God will send Cyrus to take care of the first problem, and eventually Babylon will dissolve. But Cyrus can't make the deeper issue of their spiritual bondage go away. That awaits an even greater servant who is able to conquer an even greater enemy. Who is that servant? Well, that's who we get to behold in chapters 49 through 55. Make sure you read those before you listen to the next episode. If you have the companion study guide, you are on week eight. Get through as many layers as you can. I promise you are going to love these chapters so much. As always, thank you so much for continuing to share the podcast with friends and family. Also, thank you for those of you that leave a rating or review on your podcast app. That definitely helps other people find us. It's also valuable feedback for me. And super encouraging. So, thank you so much for that. Well, until next time, may our God, who is the incomparable creator of the whole entire world, be big in your life this.